0: The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights, all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A uh, very warm well welcome to Scorebox. We've got Karen, of course, holding the fort in London. And I'm here in Abu Dhabi at Adipex with Dan Murphy. And these are your headlines. Well, Asian stocks now nearing a 10-month low. This is the Hang Seng uh, gets set to uh, hit on its first trading day of the new quarter, I'm afraid. Whilst uh, state side, the Russell 2K turns negative for the year. Crew prices, well, they're staying in the red after touching a three-week low as the CEOs of the world's largest energy groups tell CNBC about the challenges of maintaining supply security whilst keeping up the pace of the transition.
1: We are not uh, gods in our countries, you know, I don't know why, but in our countries we have uh, today uh, (laughs) energy prices above the sky, so we are responsible of everything. It's so easy for political leaders to find the scapegoat.
2: Evergrande shares spike as trading in the troubled Chinese property developer resumes after a two-day halt amid an official police probe into its billionaire founder. Tesla misses its target, suffering its first decline in deliveries in more than a year, as higher interest rates and factory upgrades weigh on third-quarter production. And Birkenstock putting its best foot forward eyeing a more than $9 billion valuation as the German Sand maker sets its price range ahead of a New York listing next week. We kicked off uh, the trading for the final quarter of the year, the uh, brand new trading month, but it was somewhat of a mixed picture, wasn't it? Take a look at those finish. Uh, the finish stateside, two tens down on the Dow flatlining for the S&P 500 and the Nasdaq actually pulling into the green but mixed picture behind the scenes too and don't forget uh, the read in the politics was that look we got the shutdown averted for now but down the track we may see this flare up just in another number of days. The market concerned about that of course monetary policy all dominant as we count down to a series of job numbers this week. We get the ADP, the jolts numbers and finally of course the non-farm payrolls. So the market just going into that session somewhat cautious in terms of the various different sectors. Well, a little bit of upside coming through, and you can see it's very obviously coming through in tech. The communication services names, uh, technology names themselves, but also consumer discretionary participating in some of the upside that we saw in markets yesterday. Utilities, though, leading to the downside. And again, that undercurrent when it comes to the Treasuries. The picture we saw on the 10-year yield again showing some stress for market participants. We got to 4.7%, the highest level since October 2007 again. So markets again weighing up the cost of funding at this point the shorthand 5.10 but also a ton of language from Fed speakers about the need potentially distilled to, to lift interest rates from here so the rhetoric around monetary policy is still strong for a lot of the traders on markets as they got going for October in terms of some of the other areas the market watched closely the Russell 2k turning negative for the first time this year only down slightly but it is an area of the market where investors are saying look Is there enough resilience? Small caps typically a riskier part of the economy when there is a recession or any hint of a downturn when it comes to what we're seeing on funding costs. Surely this has got to pressure some of the smaller balance sheets out there that may be less resilient than the big corporates. Meantime, multiple Fed officials have said rates will need to remain restrictive, quote, for some time to tackle price pressures as markets are split on whether the central bank will hike rates again this year. Fed Governor Michelle Bowman said the central bank will likely need to raise rates further before holding them with inflation still remaining too high. While Governor Michael Barr said the question is not whether rates will rise, but how long they will stay at a restricted level. Amid the slew of Fed commentary, Chair Jerome Powell joined Philadelphia Fed President Patrick Harker on a tour of the town of York, Pennsylvania. Now, small business owners told Powell they were concerned over high prices and their ability to find workers, with high rates also weighing on their companies. Billionaire hedge fund manager Bill Ackman told CNBC the Fed's rate hikes are starting to hit the economy.
3: I think the Fed is probably done. Uh, I think the economy is starting to slow. Uh, I think the level of real interest rates is high enough to slow things down. You know, high mortgage rates, high car rates, high credit card rates. They're starting to really have you know, an impact on the economy. Economy is still solid, um, but it's definitely weakening, seeing lots of evidence of weakening in the economy
2: the fed comments having an impact on markets again this dollar strength we've continued to witness over the number of months really since about summer but dollar yen in focus at this point whether the 150 handle could mark some sort of intervention level the market's watching very very closely japanese authorities had conducted that first intervention in 24 years last september you may recall we saw the weakening past the 145 handle we've gone past that now 150 in sight at this point the japanese finance minister saying today that they are watching the currency very very closely and that they are ready to respond so again Just a warning to speculators out there in the market. When it comes to other big trades, we're also closely watching the Australian dollar. The RBA deciding to leave rates on hold today. But that said, they may still be needing to tackle interest rates to try and bring inflation down within a reasonable time frame. So we've got the Australian dollar slipping at this hour, though. It is down three quarters of one percent after no move by the central bank. Elsewhere across on markets, a quick look at what we're seeing. Don't forget, China out of action still for Golden Week. We've got the Hong Kong market, they returning to trade after a closure. It is down heavily, down 3%. We've got one8 stripped off. The Japanese stock market and Australia down one3 So we're looking at red ink across the board for those Asia markets. But Steve, I think the warnings are already there and we're hearing it out of a couple of central banks. Like you may think we're done. You've looked at all the rate hikes. You've now looked at the fading momentum in some of these economies. But we may not be done when it comes of the rate hikes because there's still this stubborn price pressure issue sticking around
0: yeah, and it to see you, by the way. And, and I just love listening to everything you just had to say. Carol Karen, Karen, I wasn't buying the Goldilocks scenario two weeks ago. I wasn't buying it six months ago, and I'm still not buying it. Because we are now, and the markets aren't appreciating this. We're in the most dangerous phase. OK, so we're in the phase where rates are higher for longer. And that's what we just saw on the Treasury yields. And we can have a look again at that 16-year high, which we keep bumping off the top of uh, on the 10-year trading around about 4.7%. So we've got a situation where the reason why the Treasury spooked yesterday Say the, the, the dollar rallied and Asia's down, is because of the concern about good data. Not bad data, good data solid manufacturing the smallest contraction in nearly a year really solid stuff as well so you've got that concern as well that rates are higher for longer and that has all kinds of ramification ripple effects going through and then you've got the other scenario which is actually as Ackman was just pointing out actually yeah things are slowing down and if it goes from that slowdown to actually a precipitous slowdown help dare I say it by our friends here at OPEC and we'll talk about that in a few moments time this situation could easily spiral out of control on either side i.e. higher for longer creates funding issues and look the issues with the US Treasury market that we're looking at on the screen as well. Look at the issues. You've got Basically, a higher cost of funding. You've got buyers who actually are less interested in the US Treasury auctions from an international base as well. Added to the fact you've got geopolitical tension in China, added to the fact that the Japanese are potentially going to talk about proper rates on the JGBs for the first time in decades, which could mean the repatriation of funds away from Treasuries globally as well. Uh, plus, you've got uh, a, 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 a funding office, a, a budget con- congressional office, which is actually saying, Yeah, our oh, borrowing It's going to pick up. Look at the borrowing. First time uh, in two and a half years that the the borrowing was boosted uh, and they're planning what is it a trillion dollars this quarter as well so there's a whole host of reasons why you could have problems with the treasuries because we're higher for longer which can have ripple effects across everything karen i still not buying the goldilocks scenario
2: Just a quick point, I think, around the credit costs. It was interesting to see that over the month of September that uh, the large cap stocks managed to beat small caps. And then again, yesterday we saw further capitulation with the Russell 2000 falling below that flatline level into negative territory for the year. So again, I think the story goes on that market participants are looking very carefully at their exposures. They're worried about balance sheets and that came through very clearly in the session yesterday, Steve. And the other layers you mentioned, oil on top of it, the cost of uh, some of these transportation issues and what you're seeing in terms of funding costs combined, that puts pressure again on some of these smaller companies in the United States and beyond.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Karen. Look, I'll just move on to oil because that's kind of why I'm here. And that's why I'm accompanying and supporting our magnificent Middle Eastern team as well. Let's take a quick look at where Brent is trading. It's trading around about what is it, uh, 89.80 at the moment, 88.11 on WTI. Uh, I'm here to support Dan Murph. not that he needs any support, he just did the most cracking interview, which he'll bring you a little bit later on with the SecGen as well of OPEC, the man of the moment in oil. Uh, how are you? Very well, thank you, Steve. Yeah, yeah, it's been a, a terrific, we, you and I had such an amazing gauge of, of what's going on in this industry yesterday. It's, it's just highlight after highlight. I feel very privileged to be here as well. Learning a lot about the psyche of the industry as well. Privilege to sit alongside you, Steve. Thanks, uh, thanks you, for the, the old invitation. old smoothie, you young smoothie, <laughs> I'm the old one. Right, I, I caught up with some of the, the bosses of the biggest uh, names in oil companies uh, here at ADIPEC uh, on a panel that was focused on the energy transition, although to be fair I took them all over the place. Uh, the three of the leaders uh, described the challenges they face moving forward in a net zero world.
3: I think it's been a roller coaster uh, it's the worst of times and it's the best of times worst of times i think with the recognition that it seems to be a time where we continue to polarize the debate more and more rather than actually converge given that we are trying to solve arguably the world's biggest problem right now we'll
1: find a solution all together not by antagonizing the one against the other, the oil and gas against the renewable developer, or the emerging countries against the developed countries. That's something which for me should be fundamental in these debates about climate change and the COP. It's together, it's not one against the other. It will never work otherwise. I'm reminded of an old saying, if you want to keep everyone happy, sell ice cream. (laughs) We're not in the business of ice cream. And I'm reminded, there are people who are lactose intolerant. So, <laughs> so yeah. the, the, the indications here is that we have to make some tough decisions.
0: Well, that's the CEOs. But of course, the OPEC Secretary-General, he's got a few storms of his own going on at the moment. Indeed,
3: particularly with the IEA. We know this rift has been emerging between the two groups. I managed to catch up with the OPEC Secretary-General, Haitham al gais He told me there has to be continued investment in oil and gas throughout the course of the energy transition. He's part of our exchange.
1: We're seeing a narrative out there that is pushing companies, financing agencies, to avoid and stop financing oil and gas projects. And this is, I believe, counterproductive. We at OPEC preach for, advocate for continuation of investments in oil and gas at the same time decarbonizing the oil and gas industry. And again, I'd like to say that there's no better place than anybody can see that anybody can see in the world. Other than come here to the Middle East and see what Abu Dhabi is doing, what Saudi is doing, what other countries in OPEC are doing to really move fast and advance the the decarbonization efforts. Mm. And I think that will be a key outcome at at the upcoming COP in Dubai.
3: So what's happening between OPEC and the IEA? We know there's been, I don't want to call it a war of words, but certainly a disagreement over some of the scenarios and projections. The IEA says peak fossil fuels coming by 2030. OPEC disagrees. Can you expand on some of your commentary in the market on that?
1: Well, we respect the IEA fully, of course. The projections are that fossil fuel demand will peak by 2030. So let me ask you this and the audience this. This is less than six, seven years from now. Fossil fuels demand has been at 80% for the last 30 years. It hasn't changed in 30 years. And again, goes back to our earlier discussion about the availability of critical minerals, the availability of everything required to move the whole energy system from a fossil fuel-based energy system to a renewables and all of the above, because this is critical. What we believe in, is that we cannot just replace the energy system that has existed for so many years, over a decade or even two. And that's why we continue to emphasize the importance of investing in oil, as well as investing in renewable energy, uh, hydrogen, and the important thing is the
3: technologies the OPEC Secretary General there, Steve, really pushing the idea that there has to be this dual investment mandate into renewables and into fossil fuels. I, I,
0: I almost don't see what the problem is. I, I know that everyone wants to have an argument about where the investment should go, but there is plenty of investment to go around if you get the right mix of policy, as we discussed uh, on Capital Connection today. Look at what the IRA did, and it was something we've, you know, I've been discussing with the panel as well. IRA sucked in so much capital because the politicians, because the policymakers got the, the mix right between public sector encouragement and private sector investment I, I find it's the same with hydrocarbons and i think it's the same with renewable investments as well why is that such a hard concept for them to all understand as well yes and, and also this other row that you you alluded to in your interview which was great between the opec uh, group and the iea as well the fact is they're talking a couple of million barrels difference at a, a, a figure in the it's only a forecast It's not a guarantee, Uh, and I think what OPEC is saying, well, we're not going to get the investment in hydrocarbons if you carry on saying it's going to peak earlier as well. Well, they're allowed to have their view. They're allowed to have their view on this one. It's not dangerous to have a different view from OPEC. OPEC gets money from putting the stuff out of the ground. They're entitled to their view. Uh, The IEA represents OECD countries who have to buy the product as well and who are looking to diversify going forward. I kind of think they should make peace. It's, It's not the biggest thing in the world to have a difference of opinion of a couple of million barrels over a couple of years difference. Yeah, indeed. I would love to actually see a conversation between
3: the both of them on stage. I'd love to have Fatty Beryl and I'd love to have the OPEC Secretary General kind of warring it out to see uh, exactly where that conversation goes. But, um, you know, Steve, one of the key learnings I took from your panel yesterday was that we have these oil and gas CEOs who are really focusing in on their core operating models. They're looking at their business and they're trying to extract the most value from fossil fuels while they still can, but at the same time working on this decarbonisation agenda, which is really where the shareholder pressure has been centred in the last couple of years. And, you know, that aside, I'm curious to get a sense from you about what we learnt from BP yesterday in particular, because this was Murray's first interview on stage since the transition.
0: Um, Any key takeaways? No, none whatsoever, because because they were so well rehearsed. (laughs) And I'll be brutally honest. And I made the point on set, I'll, I'll be totally honest about this. I don't Okay, maybe I'm unimaginative. I don't give a damn about Bernard Looney's private life. It's none of my business. But I do care about companies running in an efficient way. I do care about what happens to arguably one of the most important companies in Great Britain about their energy strategy going forward. Correct. Bernard Looney had one of the most advanced Reinvigoration strategies of their portfolio out of any oil major on the planet as well. And what we learned from Murray Alkinkloss, who is the CFO, Stroke interim uh, CEO, is that it is business as usual. I, I, I pushed a few times on it. Uh, on, on what happens is there any change as well he came back at me very very um, straight back so to speak to use cricketing parlance saying no well we are going to carry on with the same strategy to which I pointed out strategies are very often built around the strong personalities that CEOs are we had six strong personalities on set as well I didn't see how that they could hone the new strategy until they had the new CEO which is going to be a very long and very rigorous process as well so I hear what um, the interim CFO had I respect that. But respectfully to him, until you know who that next individual is who's going to formulate policy, you can't tell what's going to happen to BP in the longer term. Yeah, but because, it was fascinating.
3: Because BP had this really strong kind of decarbonization agenda, looking really to future strong. fuels. I think the question in the market is whether or not we're going to see that strategy continue, but it would appear that maybe it's too soon to make any kind of call on that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think what is clear is they want molecules back on the table. Uh, we've got COP28 coming up, which is just up the road in Dubai, where, where you, you, you spend a lot of your time as well. The fact of the matter is they feel that there is a unique opportunity for the energy industry for the hydrocarbons industry to state their case for technological advancement to decarbonize the product which is a very efficient fuel of fuel compared to the inefficiencies perhaps of some renewables which require uh, a lot of capital investment that maybe don't have the same efficiencies as the molecules it's a delicious debate and it's one that hopefully you and i will continue to be at the center of going forward um, in fact why don't we carry on that conversation right here live from Adipac? Uh, baker hughes's ceo uh, lorenzo simonelli uh, that is going to be joining us. That interview is coming up. Well, we'll do that at seven thirty Central European Time, so around about twelve minutes time.
2: He's always great value, isn't he? Thank you very much for the coverage so far, Stephen Dan. Well, coming up on the show, Sam Bankman-Fried prepares for his day in court, facing criminal charges over the collapse of crypto exchange FTX. Plus, UK Chancellor Jeremy Hunt defies calls for immediate tax cuts as the Conservative Party wraps up what is likely its final conference before a general election. And we'll have plenty more from Adepec throughout the morning, including our first on CNBC conversation with the CEO of Weatherford. Don't miss that interview at 830 C. The Australian market in the red today as the central bank has kept its key interest rate at 4.1% for the fourth month in a row. The RBA's new governor, Michelle Bullock, warned the economy is not yet in the clear and that further interest rate hikes are still a possibility. ING saying they see one next month at the meeting or in December as we round out the year. Elsewhere, the U.S. has reportedly warned China about plans to tighten rules curbing the shipment of AI chips as soon as this month. The move would further limit access to chip-making tools and close other loopholes on export restrictions, according to Reuters. This is seen as key. It it may signal just from the headlines that this is a worsening again of relations, but the nuances here are uh, that there have been a ton of conversations in recent weeks and visits by very top line American officials to China to communicate that the change is coming? And the reports from the Chinese is that they are effectively expecting the changes. They have been uh, expecting an update uh, on the one year anniversary or to some of these restrictions, you may recall, introduced last October to try and stop the advancement of the Chinese military. Now, what we're hearing is that uh, these lines or these rules will bring. The U.S. interline with the rules around access to Dutch and Japanese product as well. So it's been flagged. And the question is whether that does help relations between the U.S. and China, that there is at least a communication about any update in the restrictions coming. Big tests seen, though, whether Xi Jinping still attends, decides to attend APEC summit that is coming up in San Francisco in November. That is still seen as crucial as a uh, means of any breakthrough in the relationship between the two countries. Elsewhere. Let's talk about Tesla. Deliveries fell by almost 7% in the third quarter, missing expectations. The EV maker shipped just over 435,000 vehicles, the first quarterly decline in more than a year, amid production halts for factory upgrades. The company maintained its total delivery target of 1.8 million cars this year. <clears throat> Meantime. German sandal maker Birkenstock has revealed fresh details of its US IPO, saying it is uh, in a filing or price its listing at between $44 and $49 per share, indicating a non-diluted valuation of up to $9.2 billion. Birkenstock's IPO follows blockbuster listings from Arm and Instacart and marks a first major test of the consumer IPO pipeline this year. Leslie Picker has the story.
4: Birkenstock moving ahead with its IPO with an amended F1 yesterday that kicks off its roadshow to market its deal to investors. Now, the terms laid out reveal that Birkenstock and its selling shareholder private equity firm L. Catterton will raise as much as $1.6 billion by selling 32 million shares between 44 and 49 apiece. Now, more than $600 million of that deal is claimed by Cornerstone investors who have indicated an intention to purchase shares at that IPO price. At these levels, Birkenstock's valuation would be as high as $9.2 billion on a non-diluted basis. But the roadshow itself was almost thwarted by the U.S. government shutdown. Birkenstock and its advisors had initially slated to launch uh, yesterday morning on Monday morning, but When the prospect of an SEC closure looked like it would happen over the weekend, they tried to move it up to Friday afternoon, but they weren't ultimately able to cross those final T's in time. That's according to people familiar with the matter that I spoke to. But when Congress actually averted the shutdown, Birkenstock was able to move forward with its original plans. In documents revealed a few weeks ago, Birkenstock showed top-line growth of 21% for the first nine months of the year, although profits did decline. I'm told the company is targeting a listing date in the middle of next week from the NYSE under the symbol B-I-R-K. For CNBC Business News, I'm Leslie Picker.
0: Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com.
2: Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.